just remind ourselves of the end of Peter's sermon, which I think is probably what you looked at last week. So I'll read from the very last bit of the sermon, the conclusion, which is verse 36 in chapter 2, verse 36. Peter's been explaining how the events of the day of Pentecost are what God promised long ago uh, throughout the Old Testament, in the Psalms, through King David, through the prophet Joel, about how God would send his Messiah, and through his Messiah would come forgiveness of sins, resurrection from the dead, the beginning of the, of the new age, and the gift of the Spirit. And Peter concludes, verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptised, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, proceedings, the, the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people. And, their Lord, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You might find it helpful to have that passage open in front of you, um, especially as if I go on a bit, you'll have something interesting to read. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And we come this morning, Father, needing, hungry, for a living word from the living God. Father, Jesus himself reminded us, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And we pray, Father, that by your Spirit you will speak to us this morning, that we would hear a word for ourselves, for our family, for our cell group, for our church family, that we would hear a living word, living bread from the living God, to sustain our souls, to build our faith, to give us direction. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, before I get started, there's something I just have to point out. If your Bible's anything like mine, when you get to the end of verse 41, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls, there's a full stop, there's a gap, a bit of white space, a new heading, another gap, 
and then verse 42, and they devoted themselves. And the bit I need to tell you is all of that that's in your New Testament is not in the New Testament that was originally written. There was no full stop, no gap, no, no new heading, no new section. That was one verse. So verse 41 begins, so, and it continues without pausing into verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread. The reason that's important is because if you, it's very easy to take this section and preach on the life of the church without realizing that the point Luke was trying to make is that the life of the church that you read about at the end of Acts 2 flows from the message of the gospel and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So please bear that in mind. We are going to look at the life of the church. We're going to challenge ourselves about how we do. But please remember what they experienced on that day of Pentecost, that new church. That was, a res that was what happened when the gospel is truly believed... And Jesus is truly received as Lord and Saviour, and the Holy Spirit is truly received into the heart, that church is what results. And that's the bit you need to bear in mind. So, good morning. It's lovely to see you. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, you, what do you think of the chairs? Are, are they all right? Yeah, they're better than Briar. That's good. What about the lighting? Yes, you know, I, I understand you raised some money for the lighting in. Yeah, it's good. The tea and coffee, is that okay afterwards? It's good. Yeah. Those of you at the back there, those seats, are they? they yeah, good. Because these are the things that are important, aren't they? <laughs> well, you'd be surprised at the Baptist church. If the seats aren't comfortable, you hear about it. If the, if the thermostat's been put, slightly at the wrong temperature, and one part of the congregation is freezing and sits by the side by the radiators to try and warm up, and the others are like, can we open a door, can we open a window, it's too hot. I'm sure you don't have any of that, you know, that's just, that's just Baptist, isn't it, that's what we're like. But, but joking aside, how do you measure whether a church is good or not? I mean, that's the key question, isn't it? How do you measure... It, the health of a church, the strength of a church. How do you measure whether God is pleased with your church? Now, those are important questions. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Would you like a handout? I don't, for some of you might find this helpful, you might not. This is a fill-in-the-blank handout, okay? If you find them useful, some people do. If you do, that's great. Um, but the, the object is simply to help you Engage a little bit more with, with what I say. Don't worry, I, have, I occasionally do this at the Baptist Church and some of the blanks that get filled in are filled in very imaginatively. Not much to do with what I was preaching. So it's not a crossword puzzle. Uh, brilliant. If, and if somebody could just make sure they get to the back. So we're looking at the church as God intended. How do we know if our church is pleasing to God, if it's healthy in God's sight? And we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at, firstly, to set the scene, the church in Acts chapter 1. And then we're going to look at the church in Acts chapter 2. Paul Yonggi Cho is a pastor in South Korea. And in the, uh, the early days of, of his ministry... 
He was praying to God because he needed a few things to help him in his ministry. He needed a desk. Remember, South Korea many years ago was quite poor. Uh, He needed a desk because he thought it would be quite nice to have a desk to put his Bible on. He needed a chair because he thought it would be quite handy to have a chair to sit at the desk. And he needed a bicycle so he could get around and visit his flock. And he was praying, and he was praying, and he was praying, and nothing was happening. And one day he's praying to God and he said, Lord, I don't mean to be ungrateful. And I know you do things at your time. But the danger is by the time the bike, the desk and the chair arrive, I'm going to be too old to ride the bike. And, and, you know, and I'll, I'll be retired and I won't need the desk or the chair. And he felt the Holy Spirit minister to him and say, Paul, the problem is you've not been specific enough. I've got lots of desks available in the divine warehouse. What sort do you need? There are endless different types of chair. What chair do you want? And and I've got loads of bicycles. I need to know what bicycle you want. And he thought about it and he said, well, Lord, uh, uh, I think think he said Ashwood was was quite in in South Korea at the time. He said, I think it was Ashwood. Anyway, he said, that's strong and sturdy. I'd I'd like a a desk made of that. And can I have one of those chairs with wheels on the bottom? Because that would be really nice. And I'd I'd like an American bicycle because that's quality. Shows you how long ago this was. Um, (laughs) And before I get to the end of the story, yes, he did get the desk and the chair and and the bicycle. And he said God used that to teach him to pray specifically. And one of the things that when people come to him and say, Pastor, would you pray a blessing over me? He says to them, there are hundreds of blessings in the scripture. What blessings specifically do you need? Need to pray specifically. Anyway, that's not why I tell you the story. The reason I tell you the story was a little incident that happened while this was going on. He was preaching one day, and he actually said to the congregation, God has given me a desk, a chair, and a bicycle. And a couple of the... uh, the younger men came up to him afterwards and they said, Pastor Cho, we don't, we don't wish to question what you said, but it, we, it's really quite unusual to, to have any of those items. Could we see them? Well, the only problem was God actually hadn't answered the prayer yet. So Pastor Cho said, yes, no problem. Come back to my uh, apartment where, where, I, where I live and I'll show you. So they got back to the apartment, went in, and they weren't there. And they said, well, Pastor Cho, where are they? And he said, they're in here. And they said, what do you mean that they're in, they're in there? He said, they're in here. God has promised me. God has promised me a desk and a chair and a bicycle. And they looked at him and they said, Pastor, are you trying to tell us you're pregnant? And he said, well... When a woman is pregnant, before the baby is born, you can't see the baby, you can't hold the baby, but you know the baby's there, it's growing inside the woman, it's in the womb. He said, yes, I'm pregnant in faith with a desk, a chair, and a bicycle. Well, word got round in the community, and children would stop him in the street and ask if they could listen to to hear the bicycle bell, or to feel the chair going, and it was caused immense mirth. Until a month later, a missionary returning home from South Korea gave Pastor Cho his American bicycle that he no longer needed. And he also received the desk, it was made of ashwood, and the chair even had little wheels on the bottom. He 
he said no one was laughing then. And the point is, between the promise and the fulfillment, there is a time of spiritual pregnancy. Between the promise and the fulfillment, there is a time of spiritual pregnancy. And although what has been promised has not, that, has not arrived yet, it's still real, it's still there, it's in its embryonic stage. And if you look, and this brings us to the handout, if you look at Acts chapter 1, what is interesting is that a lot of the things that happened in that early church in Acts chapter 2 were there in embryonic form in Acts chapter 1. So we find in Acts chapter 1, that in verse 14, that they prayed. They prayed together. In fact, we're told they... Luke sort of emphasizes, he puts words on top of words. He said they constantly devoted themselves. They were all together constantly devoting themselves to prayer. And then when the church is born in Acts chapter 2, what's one of the first things we discover about it? It's a praying church. Interestingly, another thing we're told in Acts chapter 1 is that the men and women were together. And that was very unusual for the Jews. Men and women worshipped separately. If you went to a synagogue, the, the, there was a sort of the man's bit downstairs, and they did the, the God stuff, and then the women were up in the gallery, and they organized the social and cultural life of the community. That's how it worked. But here, we had the unusual thing in verse 13 of the men and women being together and praying together. Now, what do we see in Acts chapter 2? And I've, I've left you to fill in the, the verses for yourselves to have a look in Acts chapter 2 and find where these things are. But what we find in Acts chapter 2 is a church with an incredibly rich fellowship where men and women worshipped together, prayed together, had communion together and shared resources together as families. So the, the deep fellowship of Acts 2 is, is there in Acts 1 but in embryonic form. There was Bible teaching. Peter stood up and he, he was trying to help them understand what had happened with Judas in terms of what God had promised in the Old Testament about God's Messiah being betrayed by one who was close to him. And he was trying to help them to see through the Scriptures that God was in charge and God was working his purposes out. That was a precursor to the powerful Bible teaching of the apostles that runs right through the book of Acts. And in many ways is the bloodstream of the book of Acts. And also they were preparing to witness. In verse 22, that, that, uh, the adding of, of Matthias to the twelve was so that they could witness to the resurrection. And certainly in the early chapters of Acts... One of the major themes is the powerful witness of the apostles and the church to the resurrection of Jesus. So in the, the church of Acts 2 is there in an, as an embryo in Acts 1. It's just awaiting the coming of the Spirit to bring it to birth and to give the, the fullness of life and the fullness of its expression. And so my question for you this morning is, what are you pregnant with? What are you pregnant with? You know, as a church, um, Herne Bay Baptist Church, one of the things that we are proud of is probably the wrong word, we're not pride, thankful for, one of the things we cherish is our children. 
There are a number of, of churches that just don't have a children's work anymore. And we are thankful to God for our children. We put a disproportionate amount of our financial resources into our children's and youth work. Because the point is, we, we cherish our children. And one of the things that you know, I have prayed in the church and I've taught in the church as well, is that the, the, the re, one of the reasons why you, you want to nurture and encourage the children so much is because the potential that's in their lives, the gifting that's, that's there. Who, who knows what any one of those children could do for God if God gets hold of them? You know, the, these children, are, if nothing else, are going to be the parents and the grandparents of future generations. The homes and the families that we're starting to, uh, you know, invest in through our, our work with our children and young people, let alone what they might do for God in terms of, of ministry. The point is, you, you nurture your children. And if, you're, if you are a, a, a pregnant mum, you will know, or if you've been pregnant, you, you will know that one of the things that you often think about is, is that what will my child become and, and the hopes and the dreams and the possibilities and, and, you, and, you, and you get the room ready and everything, you make preparations. You don't get home from the hospital and go, oh, where are we going to sleep the baby? You just don't do that. You know, you, you make the... And my point is, where do you look around in your church, if you like, and, and see the possibilities of, 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 of something that's embryonic? that's waiting to come to birth. Or something that you look at and you think, it's, all, it's almost like it's a little child, but with nurturing and encouragement, it could flourish. So just to give you an example, one of the things that's happening in our church, and we don't know why it's happening, is that we have a disproportionate number of children in our church that are in, in one way or another in the care system. Now, is that happenstance, or is that the hand of God? Now, we think it's the hand of God, in which case, what... That's, that's embryonic of something. What, what might God be trying to say to us as a church? What might he be trying to birth spiritually amongst us? And again, you know, what, these things don't, don't just happen like that. Because like, like with the pregnancy, you've got to get, take, take time to get the house ready. You've got to make, take time so that when the baby comes, everything's ready for them to grow and flourish. So my challenge to you, whether it's you personally or to you as a church, what are you pregnant with? What is it that you look around and you go, do you know, I just sense there's something embryonic here. God is at work. And if the Holy Spirit would come down and get hold of this, this could really birth something new and significant. Now, I don't know what that is. I'm asking you to look with the eyes of faith. I will say two things, and I could be completely wide of the mark, uh, but one of the things I do know is that Beacon has an anointing on it to raise people up. I, I've sensed that when I've been here before. I've sensed it in my conversations I've had with Steve. A lot of churches, it, it's difficult for people for, because of all kinds of structural reasons and the way the church is organized. It's difficult for people to be raised up, but I believe Beacon has an anointing on it to raise people up. And the other thing is, I've just had this burning in me this, this morning since I arrived, is is to prophesy over one another. The power of prophesying blessing and prophesying God's future over one another. In, and I'm talking about in the power of the Spirit. I'm not making it up. You know, what would you like? I'd like a Ferrari. Good. Well, we'd all like a Ferrari. Let's just prophesy that over one another. I'm not talking about that. 
I'm talking about the power of prophecy as the Holy Spirit's creative force in the life of the church. I just, but you might say, that's interesting, Pastor, but what I see is, good, that, that's what I want to know. What is it you see? What are you pregnant with as a church? So, my second question, so that's the first one. Um, a healthy church is pregnant, always pregnant, with the next thing that the Holy Spirit's bringing to birth. The second thing I want to ask you is, what habits have you picked up? Now, I was listening to a psychologist talk about donuts. I have a rich and varied life. Uh, a psychologist talking about donuts, or as he lovingly called them, circles of death. <laughs> and the point is, he says, I love donuts. I've been trying to give them up for years, and this is how it works. I say to myself, oh, so-and-so's brought donuts into the office. Don't eat the donut. Your wife is telling you that you're putting weight on. Your clothes are getting a bit tight. You know they're full of sugar and fat. Don't eat the donut. It's bad for you. You know, just wait half an hour to lunch and have it. Don't eat the donut. And what does he do five minutes later? He eats the donut. And we all, we all do that, or the equivalent of it. And he said, why? And he said, as a psychologist, he said, let me give you an explanation. He said, we know about our conscious mind, and we've heard a few things about our subconscious mind. He said, the point is, when our brain, the conscious mind, develops a habit, it stores it as a program in the subconscious mind, which it can run without thinking about. And that's a bit like having a radio on in the background. So say that you've tuned your radio into classic FM. Okay. Suppose you're sitting there and you're going, do you know what? I don't like classical music. I want to listen to, I want to listen to Ed Sheeran or, or Coldplay or something like that. Somebody change the radio. Somebody change the station. I don't want to hear this music. I don't like this music. I don't like classical music. What will happen? You will sit and continue to listen to classical music because you are talking to a radio. Now, given modern technology, within a few years, you might well be able to talk to your radio and it will obey you. But actually, at the moment, you have to get up and change the program. He said, and that's what we're doing with our minds. We're saying, don't eat the donut, don't eat the donut, don't eat the donut. We're talking to the equivalent of a radio or a CD player that just, it's not listening. All it can do is run a program. And the program is... Eat donuts. Because that's what I've done for 30 years. Eat donuts. I, there's, this, there's this voice saying, don't eat the donut, but you're talking to a tape machine. You're talking to a radio. It will just run what it's on. And you eat the donut. He said, in other words, the power of habit. We form our habits, and then our habits form us. Now, you can look at me and know that I have developed some, some habits that may not have been beneficial to my health. The problem is, I developed those habits in my teens and my 20s, and I'm living with the consequences of them in my 50s. Now, what we know is true of us when it comes to donuts, or trying to kick, kick cigarettes, 
or take up exercise when we've never exercised in our lives. You know, some of us, the idea of doing a triathlon is the first stage is going to the fridge to see what's in it, the second stage is looking for the car keys, and the third leg of the triathlon is let's all look for where the TV remote's gone. Right? And that, for some of us, is about as far as exercise goes. We're battling habits. Now, what I want to tell you is the same is true of the church. The church develops habits. Churches over the years get into the habit of thinking a certain way, into the habit of doing certain things and not doing others, into the habit of treating people a certain way. A church develops a culture. A culture is just another name for the habits we have of how we act and think and respond. And some habits are very helpful and some habits are very damaging. Now, a few years ago, a chap called Andrew Roberts, who uh, works with um, an organization called Fresh Expressions, which basically is a, a sort of church, uh, started by the Church of England. It's a church planting organization. He was doing some study at Durham University, and he was set an essay question. And the essay question was this. When you look at Acts 2... What do you see in the life of the first church that is applicable to new churches today? And what he saw, and as far as I know, no one had ever written about this before. You see, we often say, well, the first church did this, and the first church did that, and the first church did the other. But he picked up on the fact that we're told right at the beginning, I don't know if you picked that word up in verse 42, they devoted, they devoted themselves and the point of devotion is that you give yourself over to something 100%. And he realized that what he was reading in Acts 2 is not just what the church did on the day of Pentecost. It's what they did every day after the day of Pentecost. That this church had developed holy habits. And as he looked at Acts chapter 2, he found 10 of them. Now, I think he missed one, but that's another question for another day. But let's go through them quickly. You won't be surprised at most of them, but the point I'm making is that it's not just something they did on the day that Peter preached. This is what they did every day and every week. Firstly, biblical teaching. They are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And as I said in my prayers at the beginning, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The teaching and preaching of the scriptures is essential to the health and strength of a local church. The biggest ever global research project on growing and declining churches across the whole world was done in the 1990s in Germany. That shouldn't surprise you, the Germans are very thorough. By a chap called Christian Schwartz. And out of that, he identified lots of things that characterized growing churches. But he also characterized three things that were true of declining churches. And the number one predictor that a church would be declining is that they did not believe or teach the Bible. Biblical teaching. The second habit they had... So please remember, though, that we need to think about this this isn't just what they did on the day of Pentecost. This was their habit. Their habit was to go to the Scriptures. 
Their habit was to try and understand what God had said in his word. I'm not just asking you what happens on a Sunday morning. I'm asking about what is the habit of your church. Is it habitual for you to go to God's word as a cell group, as a family, as an individual? I mean, which which do you go to first, God's word or Google? I mean, I, I don't mean that facetiously, but think about it. How many times do you go to Google to look something up? I mean, my wife says to me, what did we do before we had Google? And the answer is we used to argue about things. Now there's no argument because some joker looks it up and says, oh, here's the answer. Yeah, we, we, Google has become very central. You've even got your little Google assistant in the house now that will speak to you. Now my challenge to you is, are you as habitual with God's word as you are with your mobile phone? The habit of going to the Bible for comfort, for guidance, for strength to hear God's word. Secondly, they were habitually having fellowship. Fellowship. There is all the difference in the world between having a cup of coffee after service once a week and being a church that enjoys fellowship. How habitual is fellowship in your church? How habitual is it that we want to be with our brothers and sisters to catch up, to encourage, to share, to pray together? Third thing, they broke bread. They broke bread. I I mean, I struggle with this one. Since I was converted, every Baptist church in the country has celebrated communion twice a month, once in the morning and once in the evening. And I want to know why. Because, as far as I can see, there is as much scriptural warrant for celebrating the breaking of bread every time you get together as there is for having a sermon. But if I was to say to my flock, by the way, I'm only going to preach twice a month, once in the morning and once in the evening, there'd be uproar. I mean, some of them would be delighted. But the majority, the majority, there would be uproar. Because they expect to hear a sermon every Sunday. But why would they they not expect to break bread every Sunday? Well, it, it, it makes it less special. Well, you could say that about anything. Preaching every week makes it less special. Praying every week makes it less special. I mean... Seeing my wife every day makes it less special. Tell you what, sweetheart, I'm only going to see you once a month. How's that? That'll make it a bit more special. Now, again, some of you are thinking, oh, okay, there might be something in that. But like, no, it, you don't, do you? The early church's worship centered around the breaking of bread because it brought together three things that were absolutely vital to them. It brought them to the cross it reminded them of the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus it brought them together as a community, as a fellowship around that table, which was the other thing and then the third thing was Paul says it in Corinthians, he said whenever you break this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim that's an evangelistic word you proclaim the Lord's death so it wasn't just that they were remembering for their own worship and comfort But in actually celebrating this breaking of bread, they were making a proclamation to to visitors and guests and and family as well, because a lot of this happened in the home around families. They were proclaiming the mystery of the cross to those that didn't know Jesus. 
They broke bread. Number four, they ate together. And in fact, those two often happened at the same time. A lot of the early church's practice of communion was in the context of meals together. They would eat together, and then as part of that, they would share in the bread and the wine. Now, I'm not trying to start a sneaky sort of campaign for the beacon to adopt communion every week. I am asking, how, habitu how habitual is it? How instinctive is it for you as a church to say, you know, this is appropriate at this point, that we should come to our Lord round the table and remember and celebrate him in bread, in bread and wine? That should be an instinct in all Christians. It should also be an instinct to eat together. How much of Jesus' ministry was done around a table? How much of his ministry was done over food? Number four, they ate together. Number five, they were glad and they were generous. And it's interesting that the account in Acts 2 seems to link them together. That their gladness was one of the things that inspired their generosity. And Paul echoes that, doesn't he, when he says in Corinthians, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. Because the thankfulness of our hearts should be one of the things that inspires us in generosity. Now, you've got the passage open there before you. Am I making this up, or is that what the passage teaches? I mean, I'm hope, as I'm doing this, you're looking at the passage and go, yes, you're right, I can see this. They were a glad and generous people. What else did they do as we read that account in Acts 2? They served one another. They served one another. And number seven, they habitually worshipped. We're told at various points that they were praising God, giving thanks to God. Number eight, they shared resources. We read about in that account that they sold property or they sold possessions in order to release financial resources which they then distributed to those that were in need. And I think that's a big challenge to us in our materialistic West. How much do we, how much do we see poverty as being a church issue? You know, the apostolic injunction to remember the poor. What about those in our own churches that are struggling? How practically can we and do we share resources? So, I hope you're keeping up. I'm going through them quickly. Number nine, they prayed together. It was habitual for them to pray. I don't know about you, but... I, without being cynical, I would say my experience is it is habitual for us to talk about prayer without actually praying. Or to be in that situation where you spend so long, I was part of a house group that was like this, before we pray, any prayer requests. And by the time everyone had finished all their prayer requests, the leader would go, we've only got a minute left. And he'd turn to his wife and say, would you close for us in prayer? 15 minutes of talking to each other, 60 seconds of talking to God. Why are we like that? Another discussion for another day. Maybe there's something about, I was reading the story again of Adam and Eve. And what, what did Adam do? Remember, Adam had walked with God in the garden. And what did Adam do when he heard God coming? He ran away and he hid. And maybe that's still part of that in our flesh. However much we say, 
we delight in God as our Father, we delight in Jesus as our Saviour, we love the Holy Spirit, maybe there is still part of the flesh that wants to run away from God. The other thing that Adam did, of course, was that he made covering for himself. He tried to hide his nakedness, he covered himself. And, of course, what we read is that actually God made a covering for him. If you know that in Genesis, at the end of the story of the Garden of Eden, that God created clothes for them out of animal skins. Can we just pause for a moment and think about that? How did God get the animal skins? That's the first record of death in the Bible. That God killed an animal in order to cover Adam and Eve in their sin and their shame. See, that prefigures the gospel, where the Lamb of God would be shed to cover us for our sin and guilt. And in fact, the word that is translated as a, as a covering is, is where we get our English word atonement from. Atonement means a covering. You get it again in Noah's Ark. You know in Noah's Ark, and it says he put pitch on the roof? No, he doesn't. That's just an English... What it actually says was he put a covering on the roof. And it's that same word that's used to describe the covering of sin by shed blood. So there's a point being made there. It wasn't just that Noah put a roof on. <laughs> it's that God put a covering over him to protect him and his family against the judgment of the flood. See, all through Genesis, it's pointing us to redemption. It's pointing us to the gospel. But the point I'm making is there's still something within us, isn't there, that wants to put on our own clothes, that say to God, I can do this myself. I can sort this mess out. I, can, I, don't, I, don't, I don't need help. But the first church habitually prayed. They habitually came to God, not just in worship and thanksgiving, but it was their habit to come before God to ask for his strength, his intervention. How strong is the habit of prayer? And then tenth and lastly, they made more disciples. They made more disciples. It was their habit not just to make converts, not that we can make converts, it's God's job, but it was their habit not just to make converts, it was their habit to make disciples. And a disciple is somebody who follows their master so that they could in turn help others to follow the master. Well, they're, they're, they're the, uh, the habits that he identified, the ten holy habits of an effective and healthy church. I said, I think there's at least one more in there that he's not picked up on, but you can have a look for yourselves. John Maxwell, who's a, a Christian pastor and a leadership expert, speaking of leadership, says, leadership develops daily... Not in a day. What matters most is what you do day by day over the long haul. The secret of success is found in your daily agenda. So let me give you that quote in a different way. A healthy church develops daily, not in a day. What matters as a church is what you do day by day over the long haul. Your success as a church is found in your daily and weekly agenda. It is not what you do once in a while that will make you as a church. 
It is what you do every day, every week, every month. It's your habits. So I would encourage you to repeat 10,000 times. A healthy church has the habit of Bible teaching. A healthy church has the habit of fellowship. A healthy church has the habit of breaking bread. A healthy church has the habit of eating together. A healthy church has the habit of being glad and generous. A healthy church has the habit of serving. A healthy church has the habit of worshipping. A healthy church has the habit of sharing resources. A healthy church has the habit of prayer and praying. And a healthy church has the habit of making more disciples. What holy habits have you picked up? What holy habits have you picked up? Or a more pertinent question might be, what unholy habits have you picked up? Now I know in one sense this may not sound very spiritual. But actually isn't spirituality really about the day by day and the week by week process? of walking with Jesus and being led by his spirit. And what I'm trying to say to you is more than anything else, it is your habits as a Christian, it's your habits as a family, it's your habits as a church that will determine how faithfully you walk with Jesus and here led by his spirit. So what's the result of a church with holy habits? Right, how does our passage end? It ends with two remarkable statements. Remember, Acts has started with the apostles locked in a room by themselves for fear of the Jews. By the end of Acts chapter 2, we're told they enjoyed the favour of the people. And the Lord added daily, daily to those who were being saved. The fruit of a healthy church with holy habits is that it will be a blessing to its community and it will be growing consistently through seeing lost people finding the Saviour. I want that for my church. I know that you want it for your church. Just receive that this morning and ask yourself the question, what holy habits have we developed as a church and what holy habits do we need to develop? Let's pray together.